And that is one thing about our profession that, yes, it's an art, but at the end of the day, there's a show that has to happen by a certain date. What I learned is that actually there, starting from the schools is a very good way to break in because that's where the artistic directors go to find their actors. Hello and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. The Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. Our guest today is Maureen Friedman, a South African designer for performance. Maureen has worked with production teams in the US and abroad, creating spaces and crafting characters for theatre, object theatre, opera and dance. Some notable work includes The Exalted at BAM with Carl Hancock Rux and Theo Belkman and Bogart directing, Collider Classroom with Dr. Christopher Emden at the Lincoln Theatre Studio, The Wolves at the Window by Toby Davis for Brits Off Broadway, and several collaborations with Yale Rusuli, including The House by the Lake, Israel and Turing, Silence Makes Perfect in the UK, and upcoming Burning Blue in Norway. Maureen is a Lindbury Prize finalist, Cheek by Yale Young Professional Alumni NYFA IAP fellow and in May this year she and her team presented their winning design for Orfeo and Eurydice in Opera America's LB Tobin Director Design Award for 21-2022. Maureen welcome to Theatre Art Life. Thank you thank you very much. So you're originally from South Africa and how did you end up in the US? Well I was born in South Africa I didn't really spend much time there we left we immigrated quite soon after I was born And we never really returned because family at the time had started immigrating out of South Africa. It became a lot easier to immigrate to different countries. Uh, the US, oh, there's a long story and a short story. Short story was uh, I had an opportunity, actually, I don't know, wow, okay, US. It, it kind of goes through theatre design. But essentially, I was in Israel. I'd come back from the UK. Someone had seen my work and thought it'd be a good idea for me to meet a specific director. We arranged a time for me or for us to meet at a coffee shop. Didn't show. I'm thinking I should wait a little longer. I feel a bit bad because I've only offered a coffee. So I get another one. And in order to look busy, I now start going through my junk email because I've been through everything else. And there's an automated email that usually comes through from the organization of Israeli uh, designers, one which I normally delete because it's an automated email. And I open it. And this time, rather than being an automated email, there are four lines. MFA, University of Connecticut, costume design, full scholarship. If you can speak English and make a fast decision, call me. And so I called up to find out what it was because it's not quite an email that you can just delete. And uh, two weeks later, I was talking to the head of the program and I thought I'd never really been to the US. I'd passed through and I was interested in going places, meeting new people I had considered uh, a second degree and specifically in costume. And I thought, it feels like a gift I, I can't really say no to. So three months later, I turned up in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut, and I ended up staying. 
finished finished that school, did a year of practical training, and I had accumulated enough credits to then apply for an O one visa, and here I am. That is such an amazing story. I mean, imagine if you never found that email in your junk email. Where would yeah. your life be now? That's crazy. <laughs> I always think about that and there's so many coincidences that are similar to that that have happened to me in life yeah I love them I I look out for them yeah there are a few of those that's so cool so tell us a little bit about your work uh, as a designer well I, I started my training in England and uh, over there it's predominantly a choice between design and technical work which is referred to as interpretation And I chose the design side, focusing on set and costume. I had the opportunity to see as much theatre as I could. It was very accessible, certainly at the time. Anything from what you might call mainstream West End, site-specific, puppetry, devised theatre, I think over there in general, the access to a variety of theatre and a variety of theatre in the same type of theatre spaces is more common. I then returned home after designing mostly, I would say, actually there wasn't really mostly at all. It was some puppetry, some design for dance, some design for uh, plays. I returned home and I started working with community theatre, then went into schools and in one of the schools down south, the people who ran the school had now taken over the theatre and what was nice is that instead of taking the usual suspects, they took all of us with them. And so I decided, I started designing for mostly new writing, new Israeli writing, I met Yael Rasuli there, who works a lot with puppetry and object theatre. So I went more into depth with that. I worked with choreographer directors there. So there were a few things that were definitely classics or what you might call Western theatre that was translated, but a lot of new local writing. And once I was able to come to America uh, through the program, I was able to design several shows that, again, they were quite diverse, um, anything from Intimate Apparel to Hairspray. And that was also the first time I had the opportunity to design for opera. They had uh, an opera course, which was predominantly focused on vocals. And the head of the course wanted to go into the design aspect or rather the performance aspect. And so the designers came on board. Finished that, lots of cold calling. Ended up working with Anne Bogart, Carl Hancock-Brooks and Cleo Blackman as part of the NIFA IAP Fellowship, which is a wonderful program that is specifically geared to international artists, which is very unique because uh, we don't have a lot of opportunity to apply for grants or any specific programs and in any event there are very few available regardless of your status for designers and through that program I met both Meg Kayser who's a wonderful writer and artist and we collaborated there between words 
and visuals. And Alison Plamondon, who I've been collaborating uh, quite a bit with, she's the choreographer I met. And she put me in touch with someone else. She put me in touch with someone else and we ended up doing an off-Broadway show of Pirandello and reworking that. And then, again, through a lot of someone who knew someone who knew someone, I started working for the University of Western Connecticut and doing mostly, I don't know if you call them classics, but plays that perhaps had been slightly rewritten or slightly new take on them, like Animal Farm, like Arturo Oi. Other than that, I got back in touch with Yael Rasuli and uh, I've been working with her on my last two shows and with another uh, Israeli artist by the name of Izzy Pittsburgh, who is a musician and writer. And that's how I found my way into working on music videos, which was a wonderful experience. YouTube Very videos. Quick, lots of work and then over. No, uh, he is a musician. So uh, he was looking basically to make the video clips uh-huh. to go with the music that he uh, or he and his band had written. Well, you've just done such a diverse, eclectic group of things in your career thus far, right? So it's what is your, when you get on a new project, what's your sort of creative process with, with people, given that you've got to jump through multiple genres or different countries? How does, how does that creative process work for you as a designer? Well, as a generalisation, it really depends, first of all, what kind of project, if you can define it. So if it's anything to do with sound or music, like opera musicals, or a dance piece where the choreographer already has a score, or even actually, now that I think of it, even straight plays that involve some music to them, or right now I'm working on Big Love, and if you read the script, uh, it's very open. But Charles me, the writer does suggest, you know, maybe there's this song in the background, maybe there's that. Then I start from listening to the music before anything. I find that sound in this particular instance appeals more to the emotion than anything else. And so that's one way for me to come up with an emotional response without necessarily thinking of whether it's viable or not. From there, if it does have words, uh, I start with a general reading and again just my immediate response as if I was an audience seeing it for the first time it could be in words could be in images it could be particular phrases that I pick out and second time that's when I start breaking down the text uh, I'm very objective I don't change anything so even if a director has come to me and said uh, we're not going to do ABC or we're cutting that scene for the purpose of breaking down the text I stick to it and it's going to be essentially musicals go by musical numbers or personally and then I have my characters and basically I don't only mark X marks the spot in terms of who's on stage when but also is there anything that is said about them. Uh, I mark out just in general what's going on so I know my place in the text and anything that's listed in terms of what they're wearing or a prop, I don't yet try and figure out how I'm going to get it on there or not. Sometimes it might be that I put it in brackets. You know, if someone's going to come on smoking, is that real, isn't it? Is it going to be in a costume or part of scenery? Where does it come from? Where does it go? So it's very, it's a very technical breakdown. 
And that just allows me, uh, first of all, to really dig deep because I have to really, really read the play. And afterwards, when I go back to it, it anchors me in different places and I can find what I'm looking for very easily. And from that, I can then draw out both the props list, I can draw out a costume plot, and I now have something to discuss with the director in terms of anything that's changeable, why do we want to change it? Can we change it? Anything that we're cutting, can we cut it? Even if it works out technically, is it right to cut or is there a specific reason why something is mentioned or why that specific colour or where it's taking place, whether it's indoors, outdoors, a private space, a public space, uh, whether it's a specific time period or or country and so forth. And once that happens, that's roughly about the time that I would share images. It does depend. Sometimes the process is very, very quick. And so everything has to happen at once. And you have to make as much as possible informed decisions where you're going to cut corners. And you have to have a lot of trust between the two of you. You're not going to have time to look at the history and the philosophy and the social circumstances and so forth. And I usually then go into a form of model making. It is becoming a lot more expensive and it takes a lot more time than if I were to illustrate it or design on paper. I have done that before, but I do find that I think with my hands. And so even though I have a rough drawing, technical drawing of what I think the basic elements are, as soon as I start building, that's when ideas start flowing and I can see the connection and how it would go from one place to another and so forth. In terms of costume, it sort of works in tandem. So I see the story in general and automatically I tend to think about what's happening on stage, not necessarily deciding if it's costume set. So it might be a first has to come on stage and I think, oh, that would be great if... 20 actors have these backpacks with huge trees walking on. I don't start dividing, well, is that a costume? Is that a prop? Is that a set? And then the first thing that actually goes into my life is a little figure because that's going to give me scale. It isn't necessarily the main character, but usually there's a character that sticks out. And um, I do focus on that regardless of whether I'm designing costume or whether I'm designing costume and set. And then I go from there. Uh, it gives me some idea of spatial relations. I usually have already asked the director how they see movement on stage. That's really my first question, so that I can give them options of movement and allow them several ways to think of blocking. And once that takes place, we have another meeting, and now it slowly starts to solidify, both in terms of visual, colour, and literally shifting things about. And then it depends. You can, I mean, I've had one experience with 16, <laughs> 16 versions before we settled on something. 16. But usually a couple of versions, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to technical drawings, talking to the technical director team, the carpenters, budget comes into place. Can we have what we want? How do we achieve it? What's the workforce like time-wise? If we're lucky, we have some time during rehearsals to respond to that because sometimes stuff changes. And a lot of the work, 
if you like financially, I think it makes sense to have a design and then start the build when rehearsals start. But sometimes you still discover new things in rehearsals. So unless it's a device piece and then it has a very different look, usually that's in a natural process. We like to say that we we hand in the designs to a magical carpet to shoot them out the other side 25 times the size. <laughs> I don't think they appreciate us saying that, but essentially, um, but it's always like that. I, I come into the theatre and think, oh, dear, that looks exactly like the model. <laughs> and I always have that reaction. doesn't matter how many times. Uh, yeah, then we're going to technical rehearsal, dress rehearsal. And the first night is when I let go. I have no problem doing that. And every once in a while, there's a mistake. Like, I can sit back and laugh at it. I don't know if everyone else thinks it's funny, but yeah. So that, that's in a natural process. Uh, when it comes to movement, there's a lot more um, physical presence in the space, especially if it's still something in development. If it comes to puppetry and object manipulation, there's a lot more chaos to begin with. And it's about physically trying a lot of things in space. So it's not so much coming into rehearsals having a good idea of the design. It's really having a good idea of the skeletal story, bringing stuff in, seeing how people use it, taking them out, bringing other stuff in, manipulating it differently. And at some point there's a cutoff point where it's like, okay, this we can still play with, this we need to solidify. Mm. It's interesting. What if you go back and you say that you present images to the director in that first iteration of your ideas? Is that images that you draw, or is that images that you find online? Like, what what's the way that you present those first ideas to to a director in terms of getting a specific direction? It could be a mix of both. Uh, usually, they aren't. Well, I find not, they're not on purpose, but they're usually not necessarily realistic images. So even if it makes sense to do a play in real time, real period, effectively build a realistic space on stage, uh, those images are not something at that stage that I would bring a director. But that's really afterwards what you know, what you need on stage. That's more of a technical process. Okay, what period are we in? What did things look like? We might manipulate the colours because, again, we're trying to focus on emotion or we're thinking about something specific depending on who that space belongs to. Should they look as if they belong to that? Should it look as if they don't belong to that? But initially those images are more about personality. Uh, They're more about the feeling that we're trying to create in that space. Is that a welcoming space? Is it alienating? Is it personal? Is it over-the-top unique? those sort of images. So it's a lot more general at that point. It's just to kind of, I suppose, get a sense of the world that you're trying to create. And after that, you start going into, or I start going into into detail. It's also a lot easier, especially if it's a new director you haven't worked with and it's the first time how you work if I bring specific stuff too early on it will do one of two things it either it boxes me in it shuts me down and it either could overwhelm a director or they could just go with that and a weekend you start thinking about all these other options but they've already gone on a tangent and blocking has started so 
uh, yeah, the more flexible I can keep it, the easier. Um, that said, I am aware of my time tape. Now, that is one thing about our profession that, yes, it's an art, but at the end of the day, there's a show that has to happen by a certain date. But within that period of time that I have, and it will change depending on my lead time, uh, I try and keep it as flexible as possible. Well, that's a, the wonderful dance between the creativity and the reality, right? You've got to leave it open enough that you can find something unique, but bring it back to something that you can actually deliver. I'm always fascinated by that, where that point is, where you're like, stop the ideation, let's deliver, you know. like <laughs> I have this thing and I do apologise to so tell me to stop because sometimes ideas come into my head and they just come out from my mouth. Do it. No, I we keep telling myself, keep it's it you, it's you. Where, write where it you down and wait. <laughs> Um, so the way I work is usually back and forth between it could be between a drawing and the technical information it could be between the model and actually setting it up so I go back and forth between the two so it's not um, quite having an idea then quickly okay how do we make this work work in reality and I find sometimes uh, the technical constraints will inform the big idea and sometimes I will arrive at something that's even better that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Also, if I can bring in the other designers earlier, that also helps. Uh, what I mean is that very often sound and lighting are brought on at a later stage. I imagine that in many instances it's got to do with budgeting and when we bring someone on to be in those meetings. But sometimes I think it just this kind of becomes this habit, which is a little unfortunate. But if I can bring them on sooner rather than later, uh, their input is going to influence things because maybe they can create spaces with light or certain instances with sound which make certain elements offset superfluous or uh, certain, I would say, the extents of stuff not as necessary. Um, and I find that ultimately, in terms of how to bring it down, really depends on the people I work with, um, both in terms of everyone has to be on board. So uh, I've done realistic-looking shows. I've done more conceptual-looking shows. You really need to have someone on board with that, whether it's a person who says, look, I see realism, but I really want to try this out, and they trust you enough to just go with you, or the other way around, and whether or not they can actually make it work uh, in their own uh, speciality. And the final cog is really when it comes down to the shop. You know, um, am I going to be working with people who are going to look at this and think, oh, wow, I've never tried that before. Let's see how we can make it work. Or am I going to be someone who feels most comfortable when I work in eight by fours? And are they going to try and push me towards that? Or are we going to say, yes, we have this budget, but it's not about how it limits us. It's just about what we can do with it. That's how it usually works. I mean, a week or two later, I might look at it and think, oh, my God, now I know what I want to do. <laughs> and now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. 
Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia-Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. So do you often do both set and costumes or is it the case that you do one or the other? Uh, in England, it's usually both, or it was usually both when I was there. I think it's just not only is the division such, and usually theatre, if you go and study it, it's very often a certain costume. If you decide quite early on you want to go into film, it's not unusual to already have that division between set and costume and the same fabrication. When I went to Israel, it's somewhere in between. It's not unusual to find people doing more than one, uh, whether it's set and costume, set and lighting. I've met one person who's done lighting in costume. Sometimes the offer is only for one or the other and that might depend on the director wanting more voices in the room. Sometimes I guess it would depend if they really like specific designers and those designers have made their own choice to focus on one thing or the other. I found in the US there's a lot more separation between the various artistries. Sometimes people are happy that I do both. So there's one world to think about. There's one person in that space that's going to key into their vision and they feel perhaps more comfortable knowing that there's no lack of information flowing between costume and set. Sometimes... Well, there's an automatic synergy, right, because you're doing both rather than having to communicate with two designers, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. I think also the other thing is it depends on the setup. I do find it easier or it was easier to design set and costume in England and in Israel simply because the setup allowed for that. It's not unusual. Well, I would say I'm I'm trying, I'm thinking of specific projects where if I'm invited on board to do both, it can sometimes jolt the system that's been set in place. So, for instance, if you've decided to add a paint weekend and a costume weekend, well, now they can't necessarily coincide because I need to be at both. Or how do those conversations happen? So it's really about what people offer. I'm happy to do both. Uh, I like doing both. I see the story as a whole. So my head automatically goes to how do I tell the story? And as I said, I don't differentiate how do I tell the story of set and then how do I tell the story in costume it's just one big world I really like that I you know the fact that you you don't want to separate them because there is opportunity for part of the set to be costume or vice versa right Mm -hmm. so you you're blurring the lines there a little bit you know how do you feel like culturally or process wise having worked in Israel and UK and US how does it 
is there is there an effect on you as a designer and the people that you're working with from culture to culture? Um, and if so, how? Yes. And I think it would be true in anything. So we're speaking particularly about theatre, so it comes down to industry. But I think it's influenced, it has nothing to do with theatre, it's got to do with literally the three different cultures. And that includes between the US and England. I arrived in England, that was the first time I really left home as a grown-up for the first time with no support network. And I say that specifically the US and England uh, just because I think not only myself but other people as well may feel that if you speak the language and you know what to expect. But when you go to a country, you realise that's the only thing you have in common and sometimes it's not, you know. Sometimes I say things like, well, like, can I get a lift? It's like, how high? It's like, no, in a car from one place to another. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. I feel that, so in Israel, I have to be a lot more creative in terms of how to get things done. We don't have as many resources as you have in England or in America. I mean, I keep looking around and I just cannot get over the abundance of what is here. And the you might not have access to all opportunities, but there's so much stuff that is happening. There are so many people with professions that have are really very specific. I find in Israel, you really have to be able to, how do you say, I think the word is ingenuity, perhaps, when you you have to, it doesn't help to say, but, but we don't have, well, okay, but we don't have a serious millinery um, department, and we don't have all the elements that you would have here, but we have a kettle, we have this shape stick it over or or put that felt on there and start steaming. Uh, You have to think a lot like that. You have to think a lot more laterally. And slowly, slowly, I think it was also, not only Israel, but I think uh, the industry was influenced by what happened in 2008, 2009. So certain positions were amalgamated or cut. And you don't often find what we would call a stage manager or an assistant stage manager quite doing the same in Israel that it would do that person would do here or the UK. It's usually the assistant director who will run the rehearsals and the meetings. The stage manager is usually someone by the theatre and will only kick in once you move in there. You as the designer will be involved also with, you know, where the entrance exit are. You will have a lot more conversations with wardrobe. You will, uh, in terms of scenic, will be a lot more involved with props. You might not build them, but the whole idea of a props list and seeking out op- options are, is a lot on you. In England, I found that that's something very much the assistant stage manager did, and both the assistant and the stage manager were present. I felt that right from the very, when I say very bottom, not in terms of quality, but in terms of fringe going up, there was a lot more awareness of what 
the job entailed. Now, I don't know if there isn't awareness or if it's just people sticking their head in the sand and pretending, but I do find that in England, yes, I could be hands-on, but there wasn't that automatic expectation that I build and paint. There wasn't that automatic expectation of, oh, so you're going to be running the things, doing alterations, purchasing building, and, oh, there's hair and makeup too. In certain instances, I don't know that there isn't awareness, but in certain places or with certain budgets, uh, it's more assumed in costume than in set. In Israel, costume, uh, there isn't that expectation that you build, but it does help if you do, certainly when it comes to an understanding. Well, I think actually that's in general. I think the more you know about other people's profession, your conversation is going to be much more beneficial to everyone in the room, much more efficient. And I think everyone feels more respected and heard in that way. And culturally, I would say the biggest difference between Israel, the UK and the US is, for me, and again, I, um, I am a little... Um, biased here because I grew up in Israel all my life so I understand the subtext and while I sound like I'm a native English speaker I've really been a guest in England and a guest in the US so I still miss some of that and especially in the US when you talk about it being one country it might as well be 50 so it really depends who you're working with Israel is, is tiny and it's much more direct it's much more about saying things the way they are and it's a very warm country. It's a very, uh, you feel people care. And that does not contradict being absolutely upfront and saying what you think. I find the UK and the US, I don't know if reserved or more polite or not quite saying direct. I, I always have to think, are you saying what you mean or is there something else going on? i give you an example. Uh, we were in Connecticut and one of the other students was taking their van down to New York. And I said, oh, would it be okay if I joined you? And the answer comes out, well, I'm not sure, you know, my sister's coming along. And I think, oh, no, 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 I'm absolutely I'm available whenever it suits you. And, well, I don't know. We're going to do this. I said, no, no, I, I don't need to come with you. Just put authority. And someone calls me aside and says, Maureen, they're saying no. I said, no, they're not. <laughs> they're making assumptions that they think, you know, that maybe they think because it's New York, I'm bringing stuff and I'm not and I'm going to pay for that. And I said, Maureen, they're saying no. Or uh, my very, very first design there um, was a little traumatic. Uh, I was totally caught, caught off guard. A director had written me in terms uh, as a response to designs that I had forwarded to him. This was the costume. And there were two questions. Some of them he was saying, I'm not quite sure how that would work with the transition. Others he asked how that would help us define that character. And we have a production meeting the following day. So I stay up late and I ask the questions, <laughs> explaining precisely how 
a quick change would happen and how this defines character. And, oh, my God, he had a go at me the following day about I'm not listening and what do these designs mean and so forth. And I'm thinking that what just happened between the first meeting, the drawings in response, and the answers I gave. And again, one of my professors called me aside and said, look, we need to think about how to, you know, work with what he's bringing to the table. And I said, but I am. And I show her all the emails. And she says, I don't think he likes those specific designs he pointed to. And I said, no, I just didn't understand. (laughs) And I explained. And some of them are really technical. It's like, you know, how do you make a quick change? So I explained because I knew what the set was. No, 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 there's an exit here. I've had a word with the scenic designer. This is going here. This is going there. So they really will have a few seconds here. Come on. And essentially, I think what he was saying is I don't want this quick change. Or I want the change to be slightly different. And so it was very difficult for me. And I just sat there thinking, I don't know what to do. How do you know when someone says, I'm not sure about something? Or how does this happen when they literally mean it? Which is how I understand it. And when they're saying something else. (laughs) So I get through it. And now we're on to another design and I go up to that director and I say, you know, this is who I am. And I, I just wanted to say that I'm absolutely fine with just straight up talk. If you don't like something, you can come and tell me that it's ugly and I guarantee you, you will not hurt my feelings. I will some, and we need to have a conversation. <laughs> and he says in a very mellow southern draw, because that's where he's from, about how he comes from the south and that's not how they talk. (laughs) All I can think of is, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? Uh, Anyway, it went really well and we got on. But that's what I mean by there's a certain subtext that, I mean, this is in words. Sometimes it's in the way someone says something that I'm getting better at, but I never picked up one to begin with. And it was extremely difficult. And I think in a way specifically because when I speak English, people pick up that I'm not from here and they might not know where to pinpoint, but there's an assumption that I come, you know, yeah, I'm like like you, I know. And there are two things. One, like I said before, you can speak the same language. You don't know. It's culture shock is real, but especially when you come from a very different culture and how language is used. I think in Israel, you can, you can always identify a new immigrant because there's a lot of please and thank you that they physically say, whereas the intonation in our voice is often softens the words so that you understand that it's a request, even though grammatically it might not sound like one and again what you mean when you say what you say so that's the biggest difference um the direct talk and i think also between the us and the uk and again i should say i'm speaking about new york 
I have not worked everywhere, but the US, I feel, is very difficult to talk about as one country. I think even in England it changes, but until I actually arrived here, I don't think I quite grasped how huge it was. I mean, you can drive Israel north to south in eight hours, you're done. <laughs> so uh, taking it all in and, and meeting people from all these different states, very different. But I would say in England already in my second year, you know, no flies off me, I was writing to agents. Uh, I was writing to designers. And the first couple of designers, sorry, I'm going to be name dropping, but first couple of designers I uh, assisted with Christopher Orman and Devlin. I just sent a letter with pictures of my work. And, you know, if it's luck of the draw and it comes across their desk when they happen to be looking for someone, then I got a call, hey, come in, let's see. Oh, we don't actually have time to see what we just need you to do this, you do this. Okay, great, do one more. Here both when it came to directors and designers. I was very fortunate, which is specifically two designers I'm working for now, but I needed an introduction and I didn't know what that was. I left school in England without asking for a recommendation and no one ever asked me for one. The only recommendation I remember asking for was when you wanted to go on a certain course or school or something, and or if, for instance, Cheek by Jow were looking for students for the specific program that they got funding for. And I think part of it was then going around looking at final presentations of schools and perhaps calling up some heads of program. But then they called you up. It might have been... Uh, a letter of recommendation if there was a certain exhibit that you wanted to participate in or be accepted to or competition or something like that. But in general, I never dawned on me to ask for one. I think that the first time I ever asked for one was for visas. You needed visas. That was a rec- that, those are the recommendations I have. And uh, then over here, there are a few things, a few fellowships or internships that you might need, but never to just connect. And I noticed a huge difference because after I worked with um, Anne Bogart, I tried connecting with people and I just wrote to him and said, I need help. I don't understand why I'm not getting answers or I'm getting answers. That was the most frustrating thing. I'd sometimes get answers and get information that was not in the public domain and then I'd never hear back. And she was the one who said, okay, these are the people, connect to them. Here's a paragraph. Let them know that this comes from me. I didn't get any work from those people, but suddenly, and there were several in those lists, which I'd written before, who I'd written before to, sorry. I can just hear my mother who's an English teacher <laughs> in my head, who did answer. And so many more people were able, or I was able to speak to. And like I said, it, it may not have led to any direct work, but it did help because it gave me a better idea of the kind of questions I'm asked, what people are looking for, and also tailor expectations. But yes, that that made a huge difference. And I've noticed just in general, um, which I mean, I think it's true anywhere you go, word of mouth, uh, at some point always becomes more important than a piece of paper. And again, Coming from Israel, everyone said, well, let us know when you have a show on. So you're in this vicious cycle of, I need so much trust me for that to happen. Whereas in Israel, it was a lot 
uh, a lot easier, especially compared to the US. Um, I had presented at the Lindbergh Prize in England and someone had seen my work there. It's on exhibition at the National Theatre. And they'd come back and were talking to a cousin saying, oh, you know, this daughter of friends of ours had stuff in exhibition. She said, well, tell her to come meet me if she comes back. And I went there. I had a portfolio. Israel's a lot smaller. So it wasn't uncommon for designers not to have a portfolio. There were only a few schools. So that was something unique. And the stuff that I had in my portfolio was very different. I think in comparison to actual theatre, the US and Israel are a lot more practical in studies. You know, very quickly into design, into technical drawings, you've put something up. Um, the UK can be like that. When I was there, there was a lot more emphasis on ideas. And you had the technical ability, but a lot more emphasis on ideas and I suppose expectation that you would learn by assisting. Going back to Israel, I saw my portfolio. It seemed very different. I literally got an entire list of names of directors and designers who worked with one of the tier one theatres. I knew where people lived. I had their cell phone and their home number. And so I literally just started calling up. And several of them, I think, I mean, out of four pages, perhaps four people didn't return the call. Uh, again, people very upfront and saying, look, happy to meet, but just so you know, I tend to work with the same group of people. Absolutely. I've just never been part of the industry here. I learned everything overseas. Perhaps you could look at my work, just give me some feedback. I'm not sure. Maybe there's a certain way to see things or who you think I should talk to. And within a week, I had met someone and he says to me, he thought I was an actress. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm the designer. <laughs> Sees my portfolio. He says, tell you what. I'm doing a show for a community theatre. If you can come back in four days, I'll see what we can do. And I started there and then I turned up to tech and they were very surprised because it's community theatre and they're not used to designers, but I'm kind of, you know, by the book because that's what I was taught. And he says, well, you know, I'm doing this production at a school down south. And part of me is like, oh, I really just want to. What I learned is that actually there, starting from the schools is a very good way to break in because that's where the artistic directors go to find their actors. And that's how they see your work without necessarily having to come and see you in terms of the design. They took me to there and then the next thing it's like, oh, and I've got this production going on at this theatre. It wasn't out of the ordinary for someone to talk to you even if they hadn't met you. Perhaps it had something to do with that I was coming back from England. I think that there is... I don't know, an aura or an expectation if you've been there. But that just opens the door to a discussion. And a week later, I was talking to someone else and they were preparing a show for uh, the Jerusalem Festival. And then this, and it just rolled on from there. And within two years, you know, you're just designing all over the place. So it was a lot more accessible. And I think part of that comes from smaller space part of that comes from again direct talk so you know exactly you're not spending time beating around the bush or trying to get hold of someone who in their words has said no but you don't get it or part of it again comes down to the fact that 
there's a lot more traffic going back and forth between that community and fringe theatre and mainstream theatre. The people who might see it as, oh, are you this designer that you translate here, I suppose, or a Broadway designer, maybe the audience, but not within the industry, not there. Um, I think it also happens to some degree in the UK, but I find here each tier is very more specific. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's very so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, so interesting. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about your work and life. And I think there's lessons to be learned. I love the idea about subtext because I've never really thought about it. I've never been able to articulate the difference between, say, Australia and America in that way. It's like it's just that language <laughs> subtext that you sometimes like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. It was very interesting to get to know the the way, a little bit of how it works in Israel, because I'm definitely curious about it and I've never had the opportunity to hear about it. All. So very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.